Uh, I was thinking as we were singing that song, a couple of different verses came to mind. Um, and I'm gonna do something really weird. Like this isn't like we're we're family, right? Like I can do this. I left my Bible in the back, and so I'm gonna Kevin. Would you mind like in that back booth, inside of my satchel, like in one of the front pockets? I keep all of my like passages on my tablet as I preach, but I really like preaching from my Bible. And I think it's like, if nothing else, like, I don't know, this is behind the curtain, maybe a little bit in my thought process. Like, I just want the church to know I'm preaching from my Bible. <laughs> uh, so I, I like to keep it with me. Do you see it up there? Yeah, either one, both of them are fine. Yeah, thanks. Um, as I was singing that song, I was thinking about um, Dusty Baker. I don't know, y'all may not know who that is. <laughs> um, Thanks. October is is the best best month of the year, and I say that as someone who was born in August. Um, October is the best month of the year because you get to watch football and basketball and baseball all at the same time. <laughs> and uh, October baseball is the best. And so this week I've been watching the championship series, NL and AL, and Dusty Baker is the coach of the Houston Astros. And they were interviewing him after he'd just won the, the American League championship. And he said, he said, man, there's, this, there's nothing like it. There's no feeling like it. He's like, there's only two places that you ever feel this. And he said, at church and then on the baseball field. <laughs> I loved that because I, I, as we were singing about the, you know, field captured by you know, the rapture, I was thinking about, man, the, the rapture that's within us as we think about the glory of God. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't that fill us with joy as we think about our story and our song, just the overwhelming, that, the, the thing about winning the ALCS for Dusty Baker is that the hope has been fulfilled. Like, it's there, they've done it, they've achieved it, so there's joy and an excitement. The thing for us is that our hope has been fulfilled. Christ has done it, he's won it. Like, we're there, the salvation is ours, there's no more wondering or waiting. It's specific and we know who our salvation is won in, and it's Jesus Christ. And so as we sing, we do have this hope of a future with him forever, but it's like the already not yet. So we get to embrace it and experience it and feel the rapture of it and then sing of our story. Like, I'm here to tell you about my story. And if Dusty Baker, after the ALCS, had said, yeah, I, I, I came to a building and chewed some sunflower seeds. And I'm about to go home. He'd have been like, well, that's, but what'd you do? Like something else happened here. What are your lives about? Like sometimes we, we focus our lives on the chewing the sunflower seeds and it's like, man, you won a championship. You've won something so much greater than that. Your life is all about Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Your life is about Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read together verses 7 through 9. Galatians 3. 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Know then, know then that it is those who are of faith, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 7 teaches us very quickly 
that those of faith are children. Those of faith are children. And, and here it says sons of Abraham, and the sons of Abraham are the children of God. They're adopted into his family. God has claimed them for his own. It is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those of faith are children. But my, my great-grandfather worked for the city of Monroe for a, for a lot of years. And actually, I don't know his title. I don't know what it was, but it was he did something with water. He did something in the water department. And so when the city decided to build a lake as a reservoir, they, they thought enough of my great-grandfather to name that lake after him. So his name was Boyt Twitty. So Lake Twitty is named after my, my great-grandfather. And I've always taken a little bit of pride in knowing that Lake Twitty was named after my family. I mean, it's, to me, it feels pretty cool. But I, I've wondered how many generations will take pride in that. Like, I'll be honest, that wasn't something I could, like, brag about in middle school. <laughs> like, none of my middle school friends thought that was, like, cared about it. Oh, cool, they after your great-great-grandfather, okay. So I wonder how many generations of my family will feel any sense of ownership and pride that their great-grandfather, their great, my kids, great-great-grandfather, and their kids, their great-great-great-grandfather. Like what's the connection? Will they even, will they know? Like, at what generation do they forget? I think there's a lot to think about <laughs> in that. The Jews took pride in their lineage. Their father was Abraham, was a meaningful fact for them. And even after many, many generations, great, 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 greats, they still were taking pride in their father being Abraham, in coming from that lineage. The Gentiles couldn't claim an Abraham as their father. They didn't. So the Jews, the Jews took particular pride in knowing who their lineage began with. And Paul looks at the Jews in their pride and says, here in verse 7, Abraham isn't your dad, or at least not yours only. These guys who had great pride in knowing that God had made a promise to their father. And we're going to use, I'm going to use father here in an ancestral way, like, and so does the Bible, that he's their father, even if he's in the great, great, great line. Their father was given a promise by God. That, that's something to take pride in. I mean, a lake, that's fine, but like a promise that the nations would be blessed, that he'd have children and a nation, like the stars in the sky. Now that's something. And they held on to that. They took pride in that. And Paul's kind of chipping away at that pride here. He says the, the true children of Abraham, those who really get to take pride in that promise, are those who live by faith. Do you think it's because you were born into the right family? Paul's saying it's those who are born again into the right family. What he was really chipping away at was not just a family history. He was really chipping away at hypocritical arrogance. For the Galatian church, there were arrogant hypocrites stirring up trouble. And they were arrogant in what they believed was theirs, their, their family history, this righteousness that came through just being Jewish. 
They were legalistic. They were lovers of the law. What had been handed down to them, they were lovers of the law, not of God. And because of their law, because of their heritage, they believed they had a superior path to salvation. In fact, they believed that they were superior. But what we know is that they weren't superior, and their path wasn't superior, that God gives one way to be saved, and that is by grace through faith. God's promises to Abraham, while feeling like, and maybe on the surface looking like it gave importance to the Jewish people, Paul is saying, look, I'm going to lay you low. Your importance is not in a bloodline from Abraham. Your importance is in the faith that God wants you to have, that he gives by grace. So Paul wants to lay these uh, Judaizers, these false teachers low and saying, don't take pride in these human things. And church, I want to tell you, Paul wants to lay you low too. There's a lot that we take pride in that are not the things to take pride in. None of us have a superior path to Christ. I think some of us stayed away from drugs, and that's, that's great. Some of us didn't have sex until marriage, and that's fantastic. Some, haven't, some have been in church our whole lives, and that is really nice work. But you don't have a better path to Christ. <laughs> you still need grace. You still need faith. You're not superior to those who need more grace. And if you've made a million mistakes and feel terribly unlovable, then I want to introduce you to Jesus. Because that's what Paul's doing here. For, for a nation who has lived under the authority of a law that oppressed them and told them how wrong and bad they were, Paul's saying, look at, look at Jesus who is good and loves you. He specializes in loving the unlovable. The false teachers in Galatia were making the critical error of believing that they had to get a number of rules right before God would love them. But we know that God loved us while we were still sinners. It was while we were still sinners that he died for us at just the right time. And we know that we love because he first loved us. Our love doesn't instigate his love. His love instigates our love. His love for us doesn't depend on our good works or rule following. And this is really the value of being a child, of being sons of Abraham, of being children of God. It is those of faith who are children of God. Listen, God doesn't claim every person as his child. I think if you listen to politicians, that's a line maybe sometimes that politicians use to garner, fa- garner uh, attention and, and, and yeah, support from the Christian community. We're all children of God. Well, believers are children of God. That's how the Bible stamps it, is that only those who are of faith, or those who trust in Christ for their salvation, those are the children of God. He claims those who have trusted Him for, his, for their salvation. And being a child brings special privileges. And we'll see more about that in Galatians. If you read ahead, you'll see what it means to be a child more and more. But one of those privileges is being loved. 
One of those privileges of being loved even through our flaws and our disobedience. Even imperfect parents, which every parent here and every parent in the world is imperfect, but even imperfect parents love their children through sinful disobedience, sinful tendencies. It's not always easy, and it can be gut-wrenching. But the hope is that as the children embrace the love of the parents, they learn to respond in obedience. But that's, that's true for the Christian as well. That is, as God loves us and disciples us and disciplines us, that we would learn to obey and love Him. The more we love God, the more we will desire to obey Him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Actually, John 14 is a great parallel passage to some of what we're talking about today. But John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a connection to, to love and obedience. But that is the order. God loves us. He enables our love for Him. We love Him and we keep His commandments. Because we are children of God, when we think that keeping His commandments make Him love us, then we fall into the same trap as the false teachers of thinking Jesus needs our help to completely save us. Right? God, if I do the right things, then you'll love us. No, Jesus has done all the work. Jesus doesn't need your help. It's by faith you're saved, not by your work, so that you can't boast. Jesus took the full measure of God's wrath for your sins. There wasn't any wrath spared where God said, if you just do good enough, then that wrath will go away too. Every ounce of God's wrath meant for you because of your sin and your evil has been taken in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who died for your sins on the cross and rose again. There's nothing left to be done for your salvation. And the scripture, verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So do you see that scripture preached the gospel? And what kind of gospel? The scripture preached the gospel by faith. The scripture preached a gospel by faith. This letter from Paul to the Galatians talks a lot about faith and with good purpose because he's talking a lot about how salvation happens. He's teaching against these false teachers who are adding on to faith for salvation. And so we see faith a lot. And I think as we continue to see faith in Galatians, we should continue to define it. So I just want to keep coming back to the definition of faith. What is Christian faith? Well, God actually defines faith for us. I, I love when God gives us um, some, some uh, dictionary terms in, his, in, in the Scripture. In Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, this is the definition of faith that we get. Now, faith is, so what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This is what faith is. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Think of that definition in context of verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by, by, by faith, well, what is that? Justifying the Gentiles by their assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. 
their, their assurance and their conviction is in Christ, <laughs> in what he has done, that he is the sacrificial lamb. It's by faith. It's not by their works. So God chose this passive receiving of his truth, which is faith. He chose this passive receiving of his truth with our belief to provide us his salvation. God shows faith as, as the mode which we would be saved. Abraham's faith, remember, was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith. It wasn't his works. His assurance of God's promise and his conviction that God would keep his word. That was his faith. That was his righteousness, that he trusted God's promises, that he trusted God alone. And God always planned to extend this means of salvation to the Gentiles. So he started with Abraham. He said, Abraham, you and your descendants. And he'd always planned for that to be true for the Gentiles, to those who couldn't claim a godly heritage, to those who couldn't claim a people as the Jews could, as those who, the false teachers in Galatia. The Scripture made it clear that God would also justify the Gentiles by the faith, the same faith that He used to justify Abraham and his biological offspring. Verse 8 points then also to the importance and authority of Scripture. It's like a, a little sneaked-in tidbit that, man, submit to Scripture. Submit to the authority of the Word. A really, a really good lesson from what Paul is teaching here in verse 8 is that the church cannot do, Christians cannot do away with any word of Scripture. There is no part of the Bible that we can toss aside because all of it, every word serves to elevate Christ. Every word serves to draw us into an enjoyment of Jesus. And this isn't, this isn't a hidden truth that's somewhere like snuck in. God openly calls us to this view of Scripture. Matthew 5.18 says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not, not the smallest thing, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. It's all important. It's all there for God's glory. It's all there for our enjoyment of Christ and his love for us. So scripture has this infinite value. Scripture has this infinite value. How many times a day or a week do you check how your stocks are doing <laughs> or how your bank account's doing? We have something of, of infinite value, something so much greater. It has infinite beauty. It has the treasure that we will enjoy for eternity. The false teachers would have held up the Jewish scriptures and said, look, to the, to the Christians in Galatia, they said, look, you're ignoring the scriptures. Look, you're ignoring the scriptures. How can you not do what the scriptures have outlined for you? You need to follow the law if you're going to follow Jesus, if he was from God. You're ignoring the law. And Paul holds it back up and says, no, you're the ones ignoring the word of God. False teachers, Judaizers, you're the one ignoring the word. The heart of the scripture is not the law. Check out this. The heart of the law is not the law. 
The heart of the law is not even itself. The heart of the law is Jesus. The heart of the law is grace. The heart of all of Scripture is grace. It's unearned, unmerited favor. From verse 1 of chapter 1 of book 1, why is there any beginning at all? It's grace. Did you, I mean, do you think about your existence, period, being grace? Why do you exist? So that you can enjoy God. You don't exist as some pawn on a board. You don't exist as some thing that just stays for a while and rots. You exist as a part of God's glorious plan for you to enjoy Him. We live in a time where we buy things and create things to have them thrown away. I'm going to say this, and I don't know if my boys will ever come back and listen to sermons from a long time ago. <laughs> my boys create art all the time that goes straight in the trash. <laughs> God created you so that you could enjoy Him, so that you could love Him. He created you for good things. That's grace. Isn't that, isn't that good? Like, I think we believe lies sometimes that maybe we were created for lesser things. Oh, you were created for so much. And what your so much might be couched in is a job at the bank. Your so much right now might be couched in studying for exams. Your so much might be couched in changing diapers. Don't lose sight of those things. Your story is about Jesus. It's about grace. That diaper is not worthless. That job is not worthless. That exam is not worthless because you are not worthless. And you give value to things as you do them for Christ. God graciously <laughs> chose to make for himself a people. Why is there any covenant or testament at all? Because God is gracious. Because he gives of himself. The heart of scripture is God himself. So for those who are holding up the law and saying, look at the law, look at the law, look at the law, Paul says, look at Jesus. Behold, he is the one. It's why Really, Scripture, the heart of Scripture being God Himself, it's why Bible reading is so important. Because the more you dig, the more you find of God. He is the treasure of Scripture. So for someone to hold up Scripture and elevate the law over the grace of Jesus Christ is an abuse or at least a misuse of Scripture. Paul is calling the false teachers back to the Scriptures, back to the heart of the Scriptures, back to Christ in verse 8. It's as if, he's, as if he's saying to them, submit to the Scriptures. Stop perverting and twisting them to your will. Stop following false traditions. Start submitting to Christ. Start submitting to His Word. They were twisting God's word for their profit, for their comfort, for their power. 
for their ways, for preserving what they knew. And to the Galatians, Paul is saying, (laughs) stop listening to them. Stop listening to the false teachers. Those who don't love the heart of the Scriptures, don't listen to them. Listen to those who love Jesus. Listen to those who love the Scriptures because they love the Scripture giver. In all of God's kindness and abundance, in all of His generosity and love, He gave His Word to us. And He put the good news of Jesus on every page. The gospel is not hard to find in the Bible. It's not hard to find in our world as we look around us. But the gospel was preached even before Jesus came to earth. God has never been secretive about His work All of history built to the coming of Christ, and now it continues to build to His return. As the Scriptures preached salvation through faith in the days of Abraham, they continue to do so in ours. The purpose of Scripture hasn't changed. It is still preaching faith in God. I think what is beautiful is that 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 preaching of faith in the Old Testament was almost mysterious, that we we need faith in God. But now in the New Testament, it is pointed directly at Christ. We know the object of our faith. It is Jesus Christ. The Bible is the greatest tool for evangelism we have. That and prayer. God's word was in the days of Abraham, it was in the days of the early church, it is today, and it will always be for all the nations. Look back at verse 8. This is for all the nations. This is the picture and the promise from Genesis 22. Understanding Genesis 22, and I'm referencing Genesis 22 because that's Abraham, right? If we go back to Genesis 22, we're, we're going to find Abraham there. So if Paul's talking about Abraham in Galatians 3, he's talking about him in Genesis 22. That's where God's Word inter, in, introduces us to Abraham. Understanding Genesis 22 is essential for understanding Galatians. So flip over there with me, if you would, to, to Genesis uh, chapter 22. This gospel being preached even to Abraham was and is for all of the nations. This scripture and our prayers, this evangelism, is for all the nations. So here in Genesis 22, we find Abraham and Isaac, great father-son duo, God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation because of his faith. But you might remember kind of preceding Genesis 22. You might know if you're familiar with the scriptures that Sarah thought that was kind of crazy. She laughed at it. They were way, they were way past childbearing age, but, but God wasn't concerned. God's able to do what he wants. So he was like, we're going to figure this out. He figured it out. He gave Abraham and Sarah their long-awaited son. 
They were old, and the birth was a miracle, and Isaac was their pride and joy. And then Genesis 22. After these things, verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Yikes. But Abraham did it. He got the wood. He saddled the donkey. I mean, look at the next verse. I mean, there's no hesitation. So Abraham, he rose early in the morning. He got right to work on it. This is a crazy and confusing passage. I know at Wingate sometimes they teach this passage as like, you know, who is God? Like, why, why would a God ask this to happen? It's a good question, right? It's a fair question. Why, why would God do this? This seems crazy. It doesn't seem to fit with the pattern of the God we know. Abraham did it. He obeyed. He got the wood. He saddled the donkey. And Isaac wasn't dumb. <laughs> Isaac was old enough to wonder what's going on. Look at verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am. <laughs> Abraham's a simple man. Here I am, my son, he said. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Why would God do this? Is he crazy to ask Abraham to go with Isaac? Look at, look at Isaac's intent the whole time. Why did Isaac rise early? Why did Isaac not doubt? Because he had faith. He knew who God was. And God was giving evidence to Abraham of his faith. And God was giving evidence to the generations afterwards of his faith. God wasn't sacrificing Isaac here. God was proving to the generations his goodness and the need for faith. They kept going to the point that Abraham built the altar. He laid his son on the altar. Abraham's going all the way here. And he raised his knife to slaughter the sacrificial son. This whole scene to me is, is heart-wrenching because Abraham's faith, one, at this point, you think Abraham starts to sweat at all? What about Isaac? <laughs> can't imagine the difficult thoughts. But at just the right time, the angel of the Lord stopped him and he said, look at verse 12, verse 12 of chapter 22. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. This is the angel of the Lord talking to Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. Do you think there was any doubt in Abraham's mind, looking back at verse 8, that there would be a ram in the thicket. I mean, he might not have known that the ram was going to be in the thicket, but he knew there was going to be something provided. I really don't believe Abraham was sweating, even as he raised that knife. 
I think he knew for certain that God was going to provide. The Lord will provide. He knew it. Then in verse 16, the angel of the Lord says this. Look at verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Man, that is, that is something that for a hundred generations to take pride in. That's something for a thousand generations that we might remember our father is Abraham, the, the man of faith. Look at how God blessed him. The gates will be his. His offspring will be like the sand on the seashore. The nations, all of the nations will be blessed. God provided to Abraham a way of salvation. A ram in the thicket was the provision. And it was the picture of the true provision. Because Christ is the true provision. He is the salvation for all mankind. And he was promised in this moment through the lineage of Abraham. There's no missing that connection of the beauty of the ram in the thicket and the one who that lamb was provided to, that he, through his blood, would someday be provided a lamb for all, a ram for all mankind, a better ram in the thicket. So as God provided a ram to take Isaac's place, Christ is the ram to take our place, both Jew and Gentile. But Jesus is better. He's the more perfect version of that because he is fully human and fully God and absolutely perfect. His life was perfect, and so was his death. He perfectly took our sin on himself. There was no gap. All of the wrath was on him, and he died to sin once for all. And his resurrection was also perfect, earning for us a resurrection too. That as we die with him, we also will one day rise with him. Isn't that a good promise for us? Aren't we grateful for this promise of resurrection? It's something to hold on to, that even in Abraham, this gospel was being preached It's really the picture of baptism, that we would be buried with Christ and raised to new life, dead to sin, alive in Christ. We're going to have baptism in just a little while outside. It's such a good picture. It's why, it's why the Bible gives us that immersion picture of going under the water and saying to the world, I'm dead to the old way. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to my own kingdom. And as you rise out of that water, it's a picture of a new life in Christ. And now I am reborn, born into the family of God. Now I am a son of Abraham, a child of God. This baptism is promised as a blessing to all the nations, not just to one ethnicity or to one nation or to one location. So Christian, it's with this message and it's with this scripture that we should go. We're not called to sit still with this message. We're told, called to go with this message. Look, if the blessing is for all the nations, then Christians who have received that blessing already should be familiar with our geography. 
Maybe we should get used to knowing what's on a map. Because we can't hide it for ourselves if we're serving the God who has made it for all the nations. The gospel is for the whole world. And it's our job to get to every nook and cranny. Let's leave no place left. Church, we have work to do. We have no time to waste. So let's get to work. If the message is meant for all the nations, then how can we remain where we are? It's no accident that the blessing of Abraham's faith was meant to extend to all nations. And then for Jesus, as he comes and gives a commission to believers, gives a command to believers for how they should live and what they should be doing, that his commission goes like this. Turn to Matthew 28. Do you have your Bibles? Turn to Matthew 28. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may have this one memorized. If you haven't been a Christian for a while, I would recommend it to you, but let's all turn there. It's good to look at the words. Verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, this is his commission to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a commission with all authority to all believers for all time, for all places, for all people, and yes, for all nations. This is why our hope is to be a sending church, that we would be sent into our community as families and individuals, to be sent into our neighborhoods as life groups. And we hope to plant new life groups all over. I hope that as we are making disciples that we, we need, we, we can't contain them in the homes that we've got. So we've got to start new life groups and new homes where we're studying the Bible and reaching into our neighborhoods and welcoming new people in. We do that so we can reach more people in Christ-centered community. So we can see more people filled with all the fullness of God. And in the same way that we plant new life groups, we hope to plant new churches too. So that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus in more places. So a question that is worth asking is, how can you be sent? How can you leverage your life for the gospel on a daily basis? Are you consistent in your life group to create community that could be replicated and planted? Maybe you're being called. Maybe, maybe God would use you to plant a new life group soon. Maybe you're being called at some point to pick up your family and your home and your job and move to a new place to plant a new church. What's obvious is this. <laughs> a gospel meant for the nation shouldn't be confined to your homes and to Union County. It's designed for the whole world. So yes, let's start here, let's do it well here, and let's send from here. We have to be goers. We have to support goers. We have to send goers. I think Provision Church, we're, we're named for this promise for all the nations. 
The Lord has provided. It's Genesis 22 that we say, provision church. That Jesus is the provision. Even in our name, then, we want to proclaim the provision of a Savior. Let's be that church. Let's be the church who proclaims it and goes to all the nations proclaiming the better salvation than just a ram in a thicket, the true salvation of Jesus Christ. So then, those who are of faith, verse 9, so then, those who are of faith, back in Galatians 3, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those of faith are, are blessed. Those of faith are blessed. Abraham's righteousness was not in his work, right, but in his faith. We've seen that. Christian, your righteousness is not in your work, but in your faith. It's in Christ, the object of your faith. And in your faith, you are blessed. In Christ, you are blessed. And you may have days, and you may have weeks, and you may have years where you say, well, I don't feel very blessed. I don't want to just put some icing over that and act like it's not there. I think that filling the weight of the world can be heavy in our lives. And sometimes it's, it's not as easy as just like, hey, read this verse and it's all going to be better. A lot of times it takes persevering through that. Now, there's just not, I don't have an easy, I wish I had something easy to give you and just say, this will make it better. But part of persevering through this hard season is going back over and over and over and, and suffering with the scriptures, not suffering alone, suffering with the church, not suffering alone, not being afraid to bring other people into your hard things. As a church, we want to be a part of each other's hard things. We're not, it's not a burden to your brothers and sisters when you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ the hard things. We're, we're glad to share in your sufferings. But in the seasons when we don't feel blessed, here, here's a truth. When we don't feel blessed, we're believing lies. Because even in the hardest, most difficult, terrible parts of your life, you are still blessed. Because even in those most difficult, most terrible things, Jesus, Christian, has still died for your sins and risen again. And his father, your father, is preparing a place for you because he loves you and cares for you. So here's your blessing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Church, are you blessed? Yes. Yes, you are blessed. Because you have a, a Jesus. You have a God who loved you so much that he came for you, that a father gave his only son, that he gives you grace that you might believe so that you would not perish, that you wouldn't suffer apart from him forever, but you, you would have eternal life. Your blessing is eternal hope. It's an eternal life. It's belonging to the author and sustainer of every good thing. It's being loved and known and enjoying God himself. It's that you are able to know and love and enjoy God, that you will have fellowship with him and a family of believers forever. You are blessed. What more do you want? 
promise of our salvation is the peak of goodness and excellence. The promise of our salvation is the peak of goodness and excellence. The curse of our sin, however, is the opposite. In our resident training meeting this week, I've already referenced some of the book we're, we're reading together in there. Uh, and a couple of our residents are in the kids. I'm looking at Cole because he's one of our residents. A couple of them are serving in the kids area today. But every week, our residents and, and our pastors meet together, and we're reading a book together called Let the Nations Be Glad. And um, one of the things that really stood out to us was how if, if salvation and being with God and God himself is completely good, if God himself is completely good and, and gives the perfect gifts, then the curse of our sin, the absence of God, death then, has to be the opposite of that. It is the absence of complete good and of joy. Because God is the source and sustainer of all that is good, then hell is necessarily awful. Because God is the source and sustainer of all that is good, then his absence must be the worst and most miserable existence possible. Just logically, that, that's true. God didn't create a miserable hell because he hated the fallen angels or sinful people. Hell exists because God's creation rejected him, and the consequence is an eternity without him. So it's, it's right for us to consider the terribleness of hell to remember that it is a real place and to respond by being grateful for our eternal fellowship with God. So we look at God and we're like, you're so beautiful. You're so good. Look at all you've done for us. Thank you so much. And we realize that there is an absence of God that is so bad and so miserable that it reminds us <laughs> to be thankful for how wonderful he is. So our response should be gratefulness for our eternal fellowship with God that when we look at uh, Matthew 28, that when we go back to Galatians 3, 7, that we're, that we're called sons of Abraham, that we might be in the family of God, that all nations might have access to this gospel, we're thankful. It's a response as we consider. And it's also being urgent in our preaching of the gospel. It's being urgent. Because our God is so wonderful, we want people to be with him. Because his absence is so miserable, we don't want people to be apart from him. And if you aren't a Christian, the right response is to turn to a God who loves you. To turn to him in faith. To trust him. To trust him for your salvation. To save you from your sin. To trust him to give you life in him forever. So what should you do with this text today? How can you be a doer and not just a hearer of this word? Let me give you three kind of, depending on where you are, steps that you could take. One is read the word in a pursuit of God. Are you, are you mining the, the treasure of Scripture? Are you enjoying Christ where he has asked you to enjoy him? He has given us his word so that we could pursue him there. So maybe you need to be in the word and pursue God there. Maybe you need to be in a, com a missional community. Maybe you're not in a life group and you need to be one. Maybe your life group, you need to help urge your life group to be more missional. <laughs> to think more of others, to think more of just, than more than just thinking inward, but how can we be magnetic as a community? And maybe for you, it's trusting in Christ for your salvation. 
Maybe you've ignored him long enough. Maybe you've tried to set aside the reality that there is a heaven, there is a hell, that our present reality deserves an answer for who could have created this and how we might love each other well. Maybe you need to trust Christ for your salvation. I don't know what it is for you today, but I want to call you to do more than just hear this. I want to urge you to act on God's word. How can you be obedient if you are a believer? If you're not a believer, how can you be obedient? How can you turn to Christ? We're going to continue worshiping. Uh, in our service, we believe that the word is the pinnacle of our worship, that studying together is the pinnacle of what we do. So we sing ahead of it, and we, we preach the gospel, we preach his word, and we sing after to continue worshiping. It's all worship. Our prayer is worship. So as we continue to worship and praise our Savior, who has made fellowship with himself possible, I want to extend to you the opportunity to come talk to me in the back. I want to be back there. If you're, if you're like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel called to go. I know God has called me. I don't know what to do next. I'd love to talk to you. If you're saying, I, I'd like to trust in Christ, but I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how. I'd love to talk to you. Grab someone near you. I, I, bet, I bet who you're with today, a friend that maybe that you came with or that you're sitting near would love to talk to you about that. Don't leave here without acting. Don't leave here without deciding how you will be a doer of the word. Can I pray for you? Father, we are grateful for your love for us. How much in our sin we don't deserve it. I think about how well you know me and strangely how well you still love me. Thank you so much. Thank you for making my salvation possible because of grace that you've given me access to that salvation through faith. God, not by my work, but just by my believing. God, I pray that for, our, for the people here today in this room, that you would bless them with just a joy in their faith. I pray that you would bless them with uh, a putting away of anything they might want to add on to their salvation. Help tear down idols in our lives. And as a church, God, help us to be fully devoted to you so that we can be missional together, that out of an overflow of our worship and our conviction and our assurance in you that we might share with others, that it wouldn't be reaching for us to talk about a God who loves us, but God, that we recognize you love us because we're spending time with you, because we're fellowshipping with you, because you're dwelling with us. And we thank you for the spirit that you've sent to live inside of us. God, thank you for the cross. We thank you. We praise you for the empty grave. And we praise you that we know you're coming again soon. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.